Hey everybody, this is Dave Broadbeck coming to you from my podcast studio, which is actually my daughter's old bedroom. Anyway, uh, coming up, Psychology 3256, Advanced Univariate uh, Statistics. used to be called Design and Analysis, but that was a stupid name, so we changed it. Uh, I hope you like it. This is for fall of 2019, by the way. And uh, you like it or not, look, you have to know stats. So, uh, enjoy where we were last time talking about the different models and whoops let's go back so we had the different um, designs or not designs sorry the different regression models which that one just moved I don't know why but basically the idea of ever having the three different ones right and which one is the best model and making that kind of choice is something that uh, you end up having to do all the time with regression and it's basically just to see which model is the best one? The whole model itself is always okay. It explains a lot of variance. It's a question of which, which one do you want to use? Okay, so those sums of squares. Remember we talked today about, about um, now severance and doing sums of squares for cases where you have unbalanced designs, mi uh, missing values, things like that. So there are type one and type two sums of squares. We talked briefly about those the other day. The type threes are what we usually care about named NOVA. Type 1 sums of squares, this is where this actually is useful, is that type 1 sums of squares depend on the order things go into models. You might think, well, that's useless. No, it actually isn't in this case, because it's going to say, have we accounted for unique variants? Okay? So let's say we have a three-variable model, x1, x2, x3. Okay? So we have a three-variable model, we have a, a data set with three variables, and we want to take a look at how much unique variance is being explained when we bring x1 in, how much unique variance is being explained when we bring x2 in, how much unique variance is being explained when we bring x3 in. So if we look at this, if we were to compare these, oops, what just happened there? If we were to compare those, it didn't show up. It's right here. It probably works fine on the YouTube video. That's great. Uh, so I can draw it the board. So we've got, let's see, type 1, type 2, type 3, right. So if we've got... Uh, type 1 and type 2, I, there you go, and we've got x1, x1, x2, and x1, x2, x3. The type 1 sum of squares for regression is going to give you just with x1. The type 2 is going to give you x1 and x2. And this is going to give you for x1, x2, and x3. Basically what it's saying is when you get this the sum of squares regression, it's going to give you all these things. The cool thing is, or sorry, that's, yeah, uh, where's my eraser? Not my eraser. Where's the eraser? Just that. Yeah, that should be just like this. Okay. That's for x2. That's for x3. So that's the, 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 the thing that's calculated. For type 2s, the cool thing here is it's x1 given x2 and x3 are in the model. x2 given x1 and x3 are in the model. x3 given x1 and x2. Okay. So what that's doing, you can see that the type 2s actually look at unique variants. The type 3, the type 1s actually don't. 
They're basically just giving you the whole thing. And in this case, we're saying we, do, we put x1 in first, then x2, then x3. So if you think of variance like a thing, variance in y, we put x1 in, and then we do x2, and let's say x3 is really In the best of all possible worlds, nothing overlaps. This is literally never going to happen, but you can pray to the, the regression gods, whoever they may be. What you're more likely to get is something like this. There's x1. Let's make it the same amount. There's x2. Oh, we got some overlap. And x3 maybe overlaps with both of them. So that goes down to all that. So the thing on the right is more likely to be that, where it overlaps more, uh, where, where we get overlap between the different amounts of variance uh, explained in a Y. I knew that wasn't showing up. It's very annoying. Nothing ever happened. Oh, well. So you can see, you might, you might think, well, why would I ever look at type 1 sums of squares? Well, what they basically are, are different iterations of the model. Well, here's what it is if I just have a one-variable model. Now it's if it's a two-variable model. Now it's if it's a three-variable model. The type twos are saying, we're going to assume it's a three-variable model. Here's those first two are already in. Now we'll look at that one variable on its own. So you might ask, why should you care and hope that the thing comes up? If there's no correlation between the variables, in other words, no overlap, the type 1 should equal the type 2's. So in fact, when you look at an output and you see that there's the type 1's and type 2's are roughly the same, you should be happy. Oh, good. They accounted for it's, 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 it's mostly any variance. That's usually not going to happen, but you want it to be as close as that to, as possible. If there is a correlation, the type 1's don't equal the type 2's. Of course, there's also an easy way to find that there's a correlation. You do a correlation matrix, and you just have all, all variables on either side, and see if there's a correlation. That's all fine. We'll talk a little bit more about that later. I had to put this in at some point, so I put it in now. About the correlation stuff. So, what can these type 2 sums of squares give you? So, type 2s give you extra variation, extra unique variation that's accounted for by bringing a variable into the, to a model that already has stuff in it. Like, it, it says, oh, that other stuff's already explained. What unique variance is this variable explaining? So, if we look over here on the right with the overlap, it's saying, and it's doing it for, for x3. It's going to tell you just what this is, right? And nothing else. Okay. So that's where type 2 sums of squares. And if you play around with SPSS or any stats package and take a look at the sums of squares, uh, some of the options, one of the things you always choose is, well, I want to look at the type 2 sums of squares. This can give you something called the coefficient of partial determination, um, which is kind of like, well, it's kind of like R squared, but 
kind of the opposite, because R squared is the whole model. This is just this one thing on its own. How much does it explain? Right. That's basically what it gives you. And of course, it can range between uh, this coefficient can range between zero and one. It's kind of like a correlation coefficient in a lot of respects. So this extra variation is what you're into. So the coefficient of partial determination gives us the extra variance. Explain accounting for the other variables. It's, a, it's sort of like you're statistically controlling for something. Okay. It's a measure of extra variance explained only with that variable. So if we think back to the example we had, you know, uh, income, years of education and uh, IQ, and we said, oh, IQ and income, or IQ and, and user education clearly correlate, they overlap, there's no doubt. But there must be some unique variance that's explained in your income simply by your IQ, and you've already taken care of your education. So it's kind of like controlling for it statistically. So what we're gonna see is what proportion, if we control for something else, We take all that variance out. What, how much variance is left that is explained by something, let's say, like IQ? So you can see why it can actually be a useful, a useful thing on its own to report the coefficient of partial determination. It keeps doing stupid things. Things come up and they disappear. You can square it and get a partial correlation, which is actually pretty useful. And you probably see partial correlations. They're just correlations that control for something. Or sorry, take the square root of it, not square it. Because it is little r squared, given something else, basically. OK. I don't know why this is doing this very annoying. Sorry. So why does this matter at all? Think about the model. Now I'm happy whenever it doesn't disappear. Y hat equals B sub 0 plus B sub 1 X sub 1 plus B sub 2 X sub 2 plus dot dot dot. B sub P minus 1 X sub P minus 1 plus E. Okay? So that's the model. It's a linear combination. It's additive. There's nothing in there about two variables acting together or overlapping, is there? There's nothing there that says, oh, and also X1 and X2 together. In fact, so clearly that's an assumption of this whole thing. The math behind this is making an assumption that there's no overlap. And we know that that's really not going to be true. We just don't want to have so much of it that it's a problem. <coughs> so there's nothing in there about two variables acting together. And that's a thing called multicollinearity, where two variables overlap. Multi, more than one, co, together, linearity, in a line. Or even added mod. So these things overlap, and we don't want that to happen. We don't want the x variables, the predictors, to overlap. 
Multicollinearity is actually a, is a potential problem because the model says there isn't any. And I don't know how you would build a model that says there's some because then you'd have to know how much. And that's not an easy thing to guess about. So we want to not have multicollinearity. Because we're not supposed to. It says on the, the model that we don't have any. But we're going to have some. So you're violating an assumption. And we know that that's bad because it's going to make, what it does is it, change the val it changes the values of the Bs. It changes those coefficients. And we're trying to make a, we're trying to build a model, an equation that says y, whatever it is we're predicting, is this times x1 plus this times x2 plus this times x3. And we can now predict y. That's the goal of this whole procedure. And now it's going to make those wrong. So how do we detect multicollinearity? And this is what I said just a couple of minutes ago. One of the things we're going to look at is comparing type 1 and type 2 subs of squares for each variable. And really, even easier, is to just look at a cor the correlations between each variable. Because a correlation coefficient is a pretty easy thing um, to interpret. You know it's just a matter of how big, in absolute value terms, the number is from 0. It can go up to 1 in absolute value. So you look at something, you just, one of the first things you do when you do a, uh, try to build a regression model is you take your, your data set and say, run all the correlations possible. Just run them all, please. And that's easy for you to do, and it spits it out, and it gives you this nice correlation matrix, and it'll have all the x's, and the y, and all the x's, and the y, and you see which ones correlate. You put one are things that correlate a lot with y, and don't correlate with other x's. Right? So you want things that predict y, but don't overlap with other x's. So probably if we had years of education and IQ, we'd look at that and go, okay, which one of these two has most overlap with y? And we'll use one of them, not both of them. Because it probably the correlation between years of education and IQ is probably pretty high. Both for the So we're going to take just one of those variables and use it. So right away, you have to check a couple of variables. It happens almost all the time. Now, again, usually when you're doing regression, you've got maybe 20 variables just to start with, or 100. You've got a lot of data, right? So you're saying, OK, I'm going to get rid of some of these anyway just to make my life easier. Just to start, I'm going to say, no, these two correlate too highly. I don't want them. Those are bad. We don't want those. Let's get rid of them, OK? And that's something you can do. It's not. There's nothing wrong with doing that. In fact, it's, there's something very right with doing it. That's part of how you, that's where you start. That's where you start. Okay. Another assumption is, in fact, a linear model, meaning we only have, it's about straight lines. There's no curves. There's no, sinusoidal functions, there's no exponential functions, it's all straight lines. But sometimes things aren't linear. The world doesn't always work that way. Think about something like, 
How many of you guys took uh, neuropharmacology with your half, right? Yeah, or you've taken brain and behavior with me. And you've seen a graph that I've shown of D2 binding efficiency and the uh, ED50 for eight psychotic drugs, right? And it's a beautiful straight line, except it's actually not a straight line. It is an exponential curve. But to do a correlation coefficient, what the authors did is they, they took the logarithm of it and turned it into a straight line, which is totally reasonable. It's a standard transformation. So something, sometimes things aren't linear on the surface, but you look at it and go, I know enough math to know that's an exponential function. I'll take the logarithm and everything will be fine. There's a lot of log scales we use, right? Uh, decibels for loudness is a log scale. The Richter scale for earthquakes is a log scale. Right? So a four earthquake, which is really not that big a deal, a five is 10 times more intense than a four. And a six is 100 times more intense than a four. And a seven is 1,000 times more intense than a four. So when you hear about something that's around that's in the high sixes, you go, well, I remember one that, that was, uh, uh, it was one here, when was that? About 10 years ago. And it was enough that, like, a little tiny few things shook. It was like a 3.9 or something. Yeah, exactly. It was one just very recently settled. And it's not that big a deal. You might go, no, that's weird. And then you move on. No, something fell off the shelf. Oh, well. I remember one when I was in grad school, the uh, center just outside Quebec City, and I was back at my house uh, that I was running with my friends, and I heard something. I thought my, one of my roommates had come in. And she did. Oh, something just shook. And then later, it turned out my mother in law, mother in law yet, my what do you call your girlfriend's mom? I don't know what you call her, but that's who she was then. And apparently, she was hiding underneath a table because it was centered near the next city. It was like, stronger. Then it was still only about four and a half. And then you hear, you know, you hear people say when they, when they see like a 6.5, well, I've been in a four and a half. Yeah, that's a, that's a hundred times more for on. It's not just two more. Okay, so we do this all the time in science because a lot of things are exponential, so we can fix that. So, oh my God, what's that? You look at that and go, what in the hell? Well, this is some weird equation. This is actually an exponential equation. Okay? Y equals lambda sub 0 to the lambda sub 1 x e. Oh, no. Now, you might look at that and wonder, what the hell is that? But when you look closely, you realize we have something raised to a power. And it's raised to a power, in this case, oh, of, look, it's, that, it, look, huh. That's a, that's a intercept. And that's a, oh, I think we can fix that. And you can. All you do is take the logarithm of both sides, and that becomes that. It just becomes a linear equation. It's beautiful. It just becomes a simple linear equation. And the way, how do you detect that? You look at it and go, oh, it's equals like this. Straight out like that. Like reaction times often do, things like that. And you fix it. And this is one of those cases when you see something that looks like a pretty systematic thing, but it's not a straight line, and you think, I haven't taken math in a long time, go find someone who's taken math recently and say, what is this? And they'll look at you and go, take an exponential curve. How do you not know that? And they feel bad, and they say, thank you, and you walk away and get mad at them and say, I'm never going to help you, or if I do, I'll, I'll be a little your uh, lack of knowledge of something when I do it. 
And then you take the logarithm and the world is a happy place. Pretty simple. So this is called an intrinsically linear regression. The relationship is intrinsically linear. In other words, we can transform it. I just bit my tongue. Uh, you can transform it. Don't taste any blood. Good. You can transform it into something linear. Do I close the story about how I bled in front of the class once? No. So, you know, overheads, acetates, they're um, very sharp. And I have to look at things very closely. And I was pulling the, uh, the protection stuff and the, the tissue off the back. There's this brand new acetate that I made. It was the intro segment, which is 1999. And I pull this thing off and it just. And it's one of those document camera type things, and it's in a big classroom at Moore University of Newfoundland, and it's a, a big screen, and all you're seeing is blood dripping. <laughs> and you can see it on the screen. <laughs> <laughs> that was awful. And I, it's, I, you know, I swear now and then, but I saw horrible things. <laughs> horrible things, like words that have MF or that, and that was a kindest, most gentle thing I said. <laughs> and then, um, I had a cup of coffee and it was hot. It was being a class because I just pulled the overhead. So I took my lip and I put it in this hot coffee in an attempt to cauterize the wound. Oh, it worked. Coffee had a really odd flavor afterwards. Um, well, it's coffee. You're going to drink it. Right? So. But yeah. And then I immediately went like, to like the office of various administrators and said, I just said some horrible things in class today. But I've got a reason. I slipped my lip and there was blood everywhere. They're like, okay. And they're like, you must walk. It's a little weird. So. But it was like blood. <laughs> it was huge on the screen because it was a big lecture here, bigger than like uh, NW200 the screen. So like the screen was probably on the, I don't know, 11 feet tall. So there were blood spatters like bigger than my head. You know, I'm trying to clean it up, and I got nothing to clean it with. It was horrible. Anyway, it's one of my favorite teaching stories, you know. Like, and then I bled everywhere. So not everything is a linear relationship. There are some curves you look at and go, well, that's not a straight line, but I don't know what that is. You make it to your math friend, and they go, I don't know what that is. That's not a thing. We can't fix that. So you be careful about that. Not everything's going to be intrinsically linear, but some things are. So you'll see something, uh, I don't know, so exponential, or you might see something that looks like this. I'm realizing I probably take the square root of that because that's probably half of a parabola, right? And again, you, you probably don't have those kind of skills anymore because it's been a long time since you played with functions and relations in grade 12 or something, but you can look at that and say, I can ask somebody who does a lot of modeling or does a lot of stuff with math and say, what kind of curve is that? Okay. And you can make it in a straight line. So there are times when you can fix the idea of a lock, lack of a straight line, but not every, you can't always do that. Okay, we also assume a fully additive model. There's no multiplication, no interactions. There's no something times x1, x2. Right? Big difference between this and analysis variance is there's no, there's no interaction. I guess you could put in x1 times x2. 
But you have to be pretty sure that that's what the relationship is. It's one times the other. It's not some other bizarre relationship, right? <clears throat> it's hard to know what the terms should be, and that's where exploratory data analysis, and again, talking to a real expert. Right, talking to somebody who has a bit of a math background, probably, or, or a pretty good stats background, can probably help you figure out, should it be x1 times x2? Could it be x1 to the x2? Like, you'd have to look at that kind of thing, and it's not always easy. Okay. It's not always easy to do. How do you select the predictor variables to begin with? Well, let's think about qualitative data first. When I qualitative, all I mean here are things that are um, nominal. They're categories. So it's not qualitative data like you think if you've ever heard of qualitative analysis where people just sort of, I don't know, read things and get a feeling for them or something. But, but it's, it's, it's when you have some hair color, right? It can be done if it's binary, because if it's binary, it's zeros and ones. Okay. So let's say it was talking about the smoking data I talked about. What if it's people who, uh, smoking is bad, uh, so it's not that data set, but one of the variables, do you smoke or not? One is you smoke, zero is you don't. Because the opposite of a smoker is a non-smoker. A non-smoker doesn't smoke, they get zero on the, on the smoker scale. So binary things are easy to code. We can have single variables and say zeros and ones. We can't do ones and twos, by the way. We have to do zeros and ones. Because this number we're building an equation. So we can't have ones and twos. Are smokers twice the smokers that non-smokers are? Twos and ones? That doesn't make any sense. So it's zeros and ones. So if it's binary, it's easy to do. Okay. So zeros and ones, not ones and twos. There are ways to do things that have that are qualitative that have more than one value. So let's say it's hair color. And let's say we say that there are four hair colors. Okay, so there's blonde and brown and red and black. Just and we've rated things that way. Okay? Let's say we've done that. We have to do something called dummy coding, which is really annoying to do. But it's doable. So we have, instead of having one variable called hair color, we have four variables called blonde and red and brown and black. So if someone has blonde hair, they get rated one in blonde, zero in red, zero in brown, and zero in black. If someone has red hair, it's zero here, one here, zero here, zero here. This is black, etc. It's doable, but suddenly, you better be damn sure this is a good variable because we're now. Every time you get more variables, you know, you have a potential model, you're making your life more complicated. And that's not something you want to do. You're trying to come up with a very simple explanation of something. So you can do it, this is called dummy coding, and you can do it, and it's perfectly fine, and people do it all the time, and it's annoying to do. Because now, let's say you said more than four. 
I don't know, maybe you coded seven different hair colors. Oh my god, you only get seven variables. You also have to watch out with Likert scales. Right? Things on a scale of one to seven, four being neutral, one being strongly disagree, seven, seven being strongly agree, or something like that. Oh, look, numbers. And people, as soon as they see numbers, go, well, we can do anything we want. They're numbers. No, you can't. That's the problem. Because the numbers, as I keep saying, don't know where they came from. The numbers think, start to lose its. The analogy gets weird here because I'm thinking about numbers thinking. The numbers think that they're numbers, and that two is twice the thing of one, and four is twice two and four times one. Except it's not. So it would be like saying, I'm watching channel four. What channel are you watching? I'm watching channel two. Oh, well, my channel is twice as good as yours. It's twice as the channel of yours. It's literally no sense. So, like, they numbers, but they don't have numerical value. Well, they, I mean, they have ordinal value, but that's yeah. all they have. Yeah. Like, you could just as easily like, just whatever seventh letter is, but people don't think about that. No, that's right. And in fact, to do it properly, really, you have to dummy code everything. Yeah. And that's a royal pain, right? Yeah. So when you use Likert scales, they, have, they really should be from, say, questionnaires or measuring instruments that have been validated all to hell. So it's your own Likert scale. So this is, let's pretend you're doing your honors thesis next year. And let's pretend you made up a questionnaire, and you made up a questionnaire measuring aggression. Because you don't want to use the 8 million perfectly good ones that are out there for some reason. And you say that someone got 38 on their aggression questionnaire, and another person got 14, and another person got 7. It doesn't mean an effing thing. <laughs> it really, the problem there, it might mean something. It probably orders them, but that's all it does. With a really well done Likert scale, you can probably make an argument that you can think of them as kind of like ratio scales. We do this way too often. <coughs> Generally, people do this all the time. You have to be very careful with Likert scales. <coughs> I can tell you that if you wanted to use regression and you were doing your thesis and you had a Likert scale, you are getting a question from me. At the thesis conference, like this. But you'd get that question in practice well before you actually did it in public. And I'd say, please don't do that anymore. Because I'll ask you this today. Don't do that. Wrong. That happens in a couple years. Not every couple, every five years. Every year, this is my question in the practices. Where are your error bars? And they look at me and say, error bars, you know, standard errors. Please go do that with your graph. Because I'm the error bar guy. Experimental variables can be great. Like what group you're in? Because there's no multicollinearity problem there. If you're in group one, or group two, right? And you have different levels, and I can measure them. I have the amount. Let's say we're doing levels of processing, and it's low, medium, high. Uh, no, no, let's not do that. Let me code that. Let's say we're doing uh, uh, retention interval, and it's 
Five minutes, one hour, 24 hours. So it's five minutes, 60 minutes, and there's uh, 3,600 3, minutes. Yes. So, I think that's right. No. 60 minutes times 24. I don't know. But I do minutes. So the numbers actually make sense. I can do that. And I can have other variables, and they're great. Let's say it's just low and high levels of processing. Excellent. Now I just have to zero the level. Right? And I can just use those two variables. There's not going to be any overlap. There can't be. I built the damn thing. So you can use experimental variables. People do this. So it comes, once you've put all this stuff together, you're going to do something called model building. You're actually going to build a model. So how do you choose which variables to use? What's the process? So differently than in our severance, where what we're trying to do is say, is there an effect? We're trying to say, this is how the universe works. Those are two different kinds of questions. They're related, but they're different questions. You're making a prediction with multiple regression, not saying there's an effect of A or B or whatever. Usually start with a long list of variables. Okay. You could do all possible regressions. The first thing you could do literally is do every possible model. Hey, look, if you've got three variables, that's not that hard to do. X1, X2, X3 on their own. Then X1, X2, X2, X3, X1, X3, X1, X2, X3. You compare them all. Well, yeah, they'll take you an afternoon. Like if you actually put it properly. That's seven models to look at. I could compare seven things. I've done this before, and I've had them all I, for an assignment. I've never actually done this in my professional career. But for an assignment, I remember in graduate school having them all laid out on the floor and looking at all of them. Well, this one's better for this, this one's better for this, and I can make it a judgment. For four variables, there's 15 models. I can do that probably. Because I can probably look and go, these five suck. We're not even looking at these. Now, now, now it's down to 10. Okay, I can probably do that. For 10, there's, I believe, the, the, the technical number is a zillion. I don't know how many it is. It's a big number. I once gave students, the first year I taught a course like this, I was in graduate school, right at the end of uh, my PhD year uh, time, and I taught this of T, and I told the class, okay, here's uh, that set has 21 variables, I want you to find the best model to predict this one variable. That's your assignment, that's all it is. I will tell you, please do not choose all possible regressions, because it will, first of all, and this was 1993, you only are allowed to print 200 pages a term. And secondly, it'll tie up to computers, because it was all done on matrix. And the number of calls I got from the computer center at U of T. Is this Professor Brodbeck? It's like, oh, that feels good. I'm just <laughs> that feels good. Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, you, uh, did you tell your students? Your students are, are using up all the computers and, uh, and all the time, and no one can do any research. It's like, I told you, people. And the guy called every five minutes. So another student said, don't tell me anymore. I told them not to do this. Because it was literally trillions of models. It was 21 variables. All regressions. Yep, that's what I'm going to do. He said not do it, but I'm going to stick it to the man. I don't know what that thinking that is. So typically you don't do this. But if you can, it's great. Uh, look at residual plots. They can be very useful. They can tell you when you have nonlinear relationships. 
You can find weird anomalies. Like you can find, oh, look, that one residual is way up here. What the hell's going on with that data point? Well, that's the guy who said he smoked 400 cigarettes a day. Right, and I, that was the data set that I gave those students. And that I left a mistake in there. Oh, if you find that, that's good. You can find nonlinear relationships. So it's really, it's useful to look at residual plots. Individual x variables along one axis, along the x, and then the residuals, y minus y hat, along the uh, y. And you want to see a uniform scatter. You think, well, it's got to be an easy way to do this. Maybe there's some automatic ways. Yeah, there are. There are three basic automatic sort of, they're algorithms. They're, they will get you along. There's one called forward selection. What it does is it starts um, with the x that has the highest r squared. In other words, the biggest overlap of y. And it puts it in the bottom. And then it adds variables. It takes the next variable that has the biggest jump in r squared. In other words, how much, not adjusted r squared, just r squared. So how much extra, do we have any more variance? Yeah, throw that one in. Just, just an algorithm. It's doing this, the computer's doing this for you. It keeps going up until r squared doesn't go up enough. And of course, this makes you think, well, what's the question? What's, what's the amount of enough? Well, you can actually calculate something called f star. You know what the computer does. And it's simply mean squared regression for, say, x1 given x2. Oh, look, it's the type 2 sums of squares divided by type 1. Yeah, type 2 is divided by type 1. Mean squared regression for x1, x2. How much extra unique variation as a proportion of the overall variation? And you know what you do? You never, ever touch the defaults on the computer. You just leave it where it is. Because you don't know what you're playing with, and you might end up again making your computer do stuff forever. Just leave it alone. Is it a significant enough? Is it enough variance? It doesn't, and it's everybody's happy. So, in this case, we have a. Eventually, this gets down to around one, and it's like, oh, it's not adding anything significant. We stop. Okay. You can be more than one, whatever. You can do it the other way, backwards elimination. Backwards elimination does exactly the opposite thing. It takes all the variables and puts them in at once, and then starts taking them out, the ones that contribute the least amount of explanatory power in Y. So all the variables go in the model. We delete variables that contribute the least until we get to, oh, we've taken out too much. Let's stop here. So it goes from the smallest r, it keeps taking up the one the smallest r squared does the analysis again. Smallest r squared does the analysis again. Takes one and goes, oh, that, that was too much. We stop here. This one's good. This is a good model. Here's your model. You know what's funny? Uh, almost always backwards elimination and forward selection don't agree with each other. Huh. Yeah. It's kind of neat. It shows you that there's other ways to pick them up. What about stepwise regression? This is the one that people think is really sophisticated. What this does is it combines the two. So you go forward, you start by going forward, putting in the thing that has the biggest r squared. And then you check the f star for each variable. 
And then you keep dropping and adding until if you drop, it doesn't change, and if you add, it doesn't change. Add one in, add another one in. What happens if I take it out? Oh, that's bad. Okay, good. Let's put it back in. Now let's put a third variable in. Now let's try to take out the first variable, the second variable, and the third variable, and compare them to the three, the three variable. And it keeps going until it doesn't change anything. You set a criterion for how big a jump to enter. So it's called F to enter and F to leave. And again, never touch the defaults. Because if you make F to enter and F to leave, if you change them just the wrong way, the computer gets caught in the loop. Puts it in, takes it out. Puts it in, takes it out. That's another thing my students do. I told them specifically, the software knows what it's doing. Let it do its job. There's a rod back there. Yes, I'm sorry. I gave them an assignment. None of them listened. Maybe I didn't teach it very well. I did get bad teacher ratings. I thought I was awesome. Then I got them. I went, oh, I'm not nearly as good as I thought I was. It's my first course. But this sounds great, right? And in fact, this will give you something closer probably to a good model. Yeah, F to enter has to be greater than or equal to F to leave. You don't want it. And what people were doing was switching that around to see what happened. And it just, do, 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 just keeps, gets caught in a loop. And that's not a big deal now when you can just shut the process down. In 1993, it was a big deal because you were using computer time in a time-sharing environment with a, with a mainframe. Okay. See, thing is, um, the automatic methods look only at these Fs. They're looking simply at R squareds. They don't look at residual plots. I bet there are now algorithms that do this. I just don't know of them. But they don't look at residual plots, forward selection, backward selection, stepwise, which is the sort of the most common ones you hear about. In fact, a lot of times in papers, you will read a paper that will say, using stepwise regression, because people think stepwise regression is a statistical modeling tool, and it's not. It's a procedure in rigging software. Drives me crazy. It doesn't look at residual plots. It doesn't care about multicollinearity, except tangentially. There's a human element that's really needed here. It doesn't care about nonlinear relationships. It doesn't know. It doesn't look and say, oh, that's not linear. We better look at that one. It just keeps going. So here's the approach that I thought I was taught. And the one time I did this, though, wasn't really for It wasn't for a paper I was writing. It was for, it's a long story. Somebody wanted to know why students were, right. someone said people were coming here back when we had a co-op thing back in the 90s. And I said, we don't know that. We're just assuming it. So I made up a survey, gave people a survey, and I built progression. And nobody understood it. And, um, but at least I tried. Because yeah. I was young and idealistic and thought people cared. So. You start with a correlation matrix. Just look at the y and all the x's. Do they correlate with each other? What you want ideally is x variables that correlate with each, with, with, with y, but not with each other. So you can immediately usually drop a few of them. Pick a subset. And if it's small enough, it's, if it's, say, four or five, you can probably just look at all the possible models. I would do exploratory data analysis of all of these things with scatter plots and take a look at we have nonlinear relationships to. 
and maybe I can fix them. Maybe they're exponential and I can just take the square root of the, sorry, the, the, the logarithm or something. Okay. But I, I pick a subset, and I, if I can, I'll do all possible models. I try all three automatic methods, the sort of classics. I try stepwise, I try forward and backward, and see if they agree. If they all agree, after I've chosen variables by hand, ones that, didn't, that were all uh, linear and they had no outliers, things like that. If I've done that, and then, the, then I used, and they didn't overlap a lot, and I tried the three automatic methods, and they all agreed, I'd probably say, yeah, it's fine. And the whole time, though, I'm checking, as I said, for outliers, and I'm checking residual plots. The whole time. And then you put it away for two weeks and do it again. Because if it's anything complicated at all, you can't remember what it looks like. You're not going to remember what the D's came out with and stuff like that. That's what I would do. And then one time, as I said, when I sort of did it in anger, sort of like in combat, rather than just playing it for class, uh, that's how it is. And I, I came up with a model and it agreed both times. So that's what I would do. All right, we're done. Of course it's done. Um, however, on
thanks for listening to the lecture. Um, all of the audio is available, of course, on iTunes or whatever podcatcher you're using. Just search for da uh, Dr. Dave Broadbeck's uh, Psychology Lectures from Algoma University, which is the most ungainly title ever. Uh, these are released under a sh uh, um, Creative Commons copyright share like 3.0 Canada. Uh, you can't use these for commercial purposes. Um, you feel free to share them uh, and feel free to mash them up any way you want. But if you do that, that means I get to do the same thing with your stuff. Sort of like the GNU license. Um, I hope you learned something. But if you didn't, I, unless you're one of my students, I really don't care. Um, the music, by the way, for each uh, song, for each uh, uh, episode, <laughs> lecture, uh, is uh, available. They're all podcasts, uh, like Podsafe Music. So if you want to uh, find out about the bands, there's links on my website at people.aoc.ca slash broadback. Uh, if those links don't work, just contact me and I'll find, uh, I'll find out. Um, often I put links uh, actually in the uh, if you call them show notes or blog posts. So, uh, you know, buy these people's music. They're, they're making the stuff available out there. Uh, thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time.